dual diagnosis. The condition of suffering from a mental disorder, such as depression or severe anxiety, while abusing drugs and alcohol in order to self-medicate. Which begs the question, what lies beneath the thing we are trying to self-medicate for? Why do we become depressed? Where might symptoms of paralyzing anxiety actually come from? Today, our guest will discuss how his personal history played a role in his addiction to marijuana and alcohol, and how he eventually achieved sobriety at the age of 22. However, fresh out of one hero's journey, he found himself embarking upon another, his brush with schizoaffective disorder, a mental illness closely resembling schizophrenia. While no one understands its exact cause, our guest will discuss how he feels schizoaffective disorder may be connected to his past, how it changed his life, and the spiritual meaning he has derived from his experience. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. What is your understanding of what dual diagnosis means? Dual diagnosis really means that there's an interplay between the disease of addiction and the disease of the mental health illness. I may be having symptoms that are mental health related and I quash them with a drug or a a drink or Mm -hmm. something of the like. Uh, At the same time, my addiction fuels the mental health issue that I'm having Mm -hmm. and makes it a lot, basically just makes it worse. So if someone's depressed or anxious, they go and they hit the bottle, they feel a lot better and it makes the whole thing worse and it starts this sort of downward spiral. You feel depressed, you go out and you drink, you feel fine while you're drinking, and then you wake up the next day and realize you've gotten into DUI, you've lost your boyfriend or girlfriend, you've spent tons and tons of money, you've slept with the wrong people, you've burnt things down, you've thrown things out the window, God knows, and so you end up feeling more depressed, and so what do you do? You get another drink, because what are you supposed to do, right? Exactly. That cycle happens with lots of drugs, not just alcohol. There's all sorts of wreckage and damage that all these drugs do. It seems to perpetuate the depression and anxiety and possibly PTSD or bipolarism or whatever it is that they're uh, meant to cover up. Dual diagnosis is basically about self-medication. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. People self-medicate with not just drugs and alcohol. What else do they self-medicate with? Sex, gambling, food, all things that I still do from time to time. Yeah. Dual diagnosis is basically, in my opinion, Western civilization's first foray into thinking about the psyche as something that's deep. Because <laughs> they say, well, you know, what, what, well, this, this drug use, this is based on this patient's depression. Oh, we were looking deeply into the psyche. Well, okay, well, what's the depression based on? How deep does it go? A classic example of dual diagnosis and compensatory behaviors and also what's called cross-addiction, which means that you substitute one thing for another. So a lot of people, for instance, will stop drinking and they'll start eating or they'll start working out. There was one guy, I remember I was in rehab before I was an intern or anything like that. He was an alcoholic and um, he came back to treatment, I don't know, 12 months later or something like that. And he looked like he'd gained 20 pounds of muscle. Uh, His arm was in a sling and he was drunk. And what had happened was he'd stop drinking and started doing CrossFit. (laughs) <laughs> and you know it worked until it until his rotator cuff tore and then once his rotator cuff tore what do you suppose happened he drank again he drank again right so these are the things we're looking at today which is pretty cool so tell us about your childhood um and what kind of circumstances that shaped you well i'll start off with a story i remember being a little kid and i was playing pretend there was this monster that i was scared of called the blues the rest of my childhood was essentially 
a lot of depression, a lot of chaotic family life. And it's almost like that monster, the blues, came to life within my family, right? Now, you know, my father was very emotionally abusive. My, my home life was kind of like walking on eggshells all the time. You know, my mother was very codependent, always trying to fix things, make things better. I just remember being very maladjusted. I had trouble fitting in with my peers. I, I had trouble coping with my own emotions in healthy ways, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember one time my father was yelling at my mother. I ran in and I said, Dad, stop. He was, he was, in, a fly, he was in a rage. He turned to me and started yelling at me. And I remember at the time being extremely scared and I ran into my room and I hid under my bed. I remember feeling ashamed of myself and mm-hmm. looking back, it's like, you know, I was a kid and this, you know, large adult is yelling at me. Of course, yeah. I'm going to be scared. Of sure. course, I'm going to. Right. But at the time, I just remember feeling ashamed that I couldn't do anything. My father would like he'd ask me for a hug. I'd say no. And his response would be like, you're an asshole. Ooh, something like that. Right. Yeah. It's pretty rough. Like that's, that's a lot for a kid to deal with. Well, that was a self-perpetuating thing because your dad is like being abusive asks for a hug you say no he he gives you an abusive response but why would you want to hug someone like that yeah um i remember like i'd be watching tv at night my dad would be trying to sleep he'd tell me to put the volume down yelling at me of course i would put i'd listen to him because you know i needed to put the volume down i'd put it down to a very low level and he'd come out constantly telling me to put it lower and Mm -hmm. lower and lower and lower to the point where i couldn't even hear it and it, it Again, that's I, I can't really classify that specifically as abuse, but it created this it, in me, it created this fear of like, I have to like bend to other people kind of thing, if that makes sense. And also walking on eggshells. You never know when dad's going to bust in because you're like, well, I think I'm complying with the rules, but how do you know what the rules are? If, if Imagine if the TV had been off and he busted in, that would have been really crazy making. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that might have happened. I, I, could just, I just can't remember. Yeah. There was another time that specifically sticks out to me that I remember actually really getting into it with my dad about later on in life. I had placed a towel on the rack and it wasn't properly put on, you know, because uh-huh. I was a kid. It slipped and he uh, smacked me in the back of the head. And How old you? Uh, I must have been like six or seven. Oof. You know, I, I remember one time... I was really mad. I was I was eight years old and I was yelling at my dad. I rushed at him and I, I tried to punch him in the stomach. I still don't know to this day if he need me in the ribs or if he was really trying to stop me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But he put his knee up either way mm-hmm. and I was super injured, like really messed up. And I just kind of remember my mom like holding me mm-hmm. and like, you know, like saying like, oh, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And I was freaking out. You know, it was rough. Childhood wasn't easy. It definitely did not lend to a life that would be well adjusted. So your mother was not a strong figure either? Was she not able to hold the household together and draw boundaries with your father? Not at all. She would kind of pick at him in arguments in a sort of a passive aggressive way. The sense that I'm getting is that you had a childhood where you didn't feel safe and contained. Like you never knew when the house was gonna shake, when your parents were gonna fight. There, your mom couldn't hold boundaries with your dad. Your dad couldn't hold boundaries with himself. Instead of realizing he's talking to a six-year-old kid who doesn't, who's afraid to hug him, he doesn't. Re- he can't empathize with that child. So he's got some narcissistic tendencies, where he's just, it's all about me. It's like you know, he's a, he's a child. Right, right. And what I want to make clear to listeners is that this is not about blaming one's parents. Uh, it's uh, Mark Manson in his horribly titled book, "Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck." Um, it's catchy. It's catchy and stupid. 
uh, says that you know we have to take responsibility for our lives. Mm-hmm. It's not about blaming; it's about taking responsibility. So, but we're, that's what I want to name this here is that is that if you're out there and you've got all this crap that happened to you as a kid and you were shaped by it, I don't like using the word trauma. I like using the word shaped, like a young tree that's been twisted in a funny position. The tree, like a bonsai tree that doesn't have a lot of dirt to grow in it. It's dwarfed, but it's a fully functional tree. It just has a different shape to it. And it's really, really important for people to, if you're going to examine your own dark underpinnings, you've got to look at how you are shaped as a human being. And the reasoning behind that is, is that if we examine those areas you'll create movement in the psyche that where there hasn't been movement for years and the blood will start to flow and the energy will start to pop and the natural sort of i don't even know what to call it juices that's kind of a weird word of your of your unconscious will get to that area and start to mix it up and do something with it people with ptsd often have the same nightmare over and over and over again and there's science behind that that dreams actually ameliorate trauma but people with ptsd the psyche is trying to heal by having the dream of the trauma over and over again and it's not working that's why they keep having the dream it's almost as though the dream's repetition is indicating that there hasn't been sufficient movement in the psyche or memory to facilitate healing or growth that is there hasn't been enough change i have something you just yeah. sparked something there as a kid i used to have this i haven't had this dream in years i, I was a big fan of the show recess as a kid i don't know if you remember it. no but i was hanging out with the kids from recess and we'd walk into this pumpkin patch and there was a witch Ooh. in the pumpkin patch the witch would kill us should kill all of us oh god what that means i have no idea but that is an example of what you mentioned more nowadays and I've had these dreams since I was a kid. I remember my mother was terrified of crocodiles coming up onto the uh, property and attacking me or my brother. Right. To this day, I still have dreams of me being on the side of the canal in my backyard and crocodiles are lining the bottom of the canal. Right. To this day. What do you make of that dream? Um, I would say it has something to do with her fear and her fearful kind of nature. Like mm-hmm. you said, it shaped me. Mm-hmm. Again, like I can't blame her for that, but it has definitely shaped who I became and who I try to contend with. You're carrying your mother's sanity. Yes, absolutely. Do you see how that dream correlates a little bit to the witch dream? Uh, go on. I don't. A dangerous entity out to get you, waiting for you. Yeah. One by a river where it's supposed to be nice, a pumpkin patch, a place of fertility and with your friends. And this dark energy comes and annihilates you. Yeah. And in the first dream, the dark energy is feminine. It's a negative mother figure. I don't know if that's necessarily connected to your mom. It could be that if I was to go way out on a limb, I would say that the crocodile was a concrete image of what your mother was afraid of. The primitive crocodiles are primitive, right? Right. Primitive, raw, scary energy that she was afraid of, which would make sense that she wasn't able to manage your father because he he kind of was probably emblematic of some of that energy. Like, what do I do with this insanity, this raw, primitive, narcissistic male shit that's coming my way, right? Right. And then the witch could symbolize your mom's, the fact that that fear was coming from a, a feminine place. Sure. That it was, it was destroying you. Both dreams say to me, you did not feel safe on any level. No. Ever. What did the blues monster look like? Didn't have a shape. At least like, not that I can remember. I just remember hiding behind my dad and like I was in a lot of fear and I was like, the blues is coming to get me. The blues. And do you see how that correlates to those two dreams? Sure. I felt unsafe. It's coming to get you. Yeah. The yeah. witch, the crocodiles, the blues, a dark, unknowable, 
uncontrollable entity, right? An implacable entity, an entity with no sense of or remorse or compassion. A witch, what's the, what's the worst thing in the world? And the witch is also, it's very difficult to contend with a witch. It's magical. Sure. And the blues is even more difficult because it doesn't even have a goddamn shape. <laughs> At least yeah. the crocodiles, you knew where the fuck they were. Oh yeah, I just avoid, <laughs> I just avoid them. That's what I do in the dreams every time. I'm like, I'm getting away from those that's, crocodiles. That's one of the great things about crocodiles is like you just stay away from the edge of the water and you're going to be okay. Right. Uh, also, the water is symbolic of the unconscious. And so I'm going to analyze your mom's fear a little bit. Crocodiles are one of the ultimate symbols for the thing that lies beneath the water. If water is a symbol of the unconscious, and if you approach the water, it's going to be dangerous. So the, the dream, her fear is like, don't approach the unconscious. Don't don't go there. Don't go deep. Because if you go, if you even get near the depths, you're going to get snatched up and killed. Yeah. I'm not saying your mother was necessarily this way, but that's sort of how I'm interpreting some of this stuff. Of course. Of it's course. interesting shit. It's super interesting. So that gives us a really good background for... You know, a, a child, six, seven, eight years old, feeling very insecure, very unprotected, fearful all the time, unsure of his reality, unsure that he can protect himself, can't even protect his own mother. That sort of a sets a stage. You get a picture of how you were shaped. Right. Now let's move forward in time to how that shaping manifests. What did you do to deal with that? You know, I remember smoking weed with my friends in an apartment. And I felt great. I just felt like I was able to connect with the people around me. I didn't really care what anyone thought. Can you see how getting high kind of filled a lot of the gaps that had been left from your early childhood? Absolutely. And what were those gaps? Well, I felt unsafe. Yeah, you felt, felt insecure. Insecure. I felt disconnected from the people around me. Getting high, all that came back. Boom. And so what I often tell my patients who struggle with addiction is, is what did your substance do for you? What was its job? Some people say, well, it numbs me out. Some people say it makes me feel connected to other people. Some people say it relaxes me. Some people say it um, gives me energy, makes me feel alert and motivated. And almost always, whatever the drug is doing for them is a direct, directly correlated to whatever it is they actually need in life, which is why they chose that drug. So keep going. So you're 14, you, you start smoking weed on a pretty regular basis. And what else is happening that, that's comp compensating for your past? Um... You know, I start meeting girls, talking mm -hmm. to girls, got into mixed martial arts. That was definitely a big one. That was a little later. I was uh, I was 17 when I got into mixed martial arts. Okay. I It actually happened because of a situation where I felt like I couldn't, def <laughs> this is, it's almost Freudian. I felt like I couldn't defend a friend of mine from someone else. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to learn how to fight uh -huh. and I'm going to beat this person up, essentially. So in other words, it's connected in the sense that you couldn't protect your friend the way you couldn't protect your mother. Exactly. Okay and had other friends who also did mixed martial arts right we all had the same interests and we'd go to parties and at the slightest provocation we'd start a fight oh, you know wow. which was and you're at a party you're in high school right. there's going to be provocations we knew they were coming and we we were prepared i'm not saying this as a way of saying that anyone should do that right but it is the reality of who i was and what i did it's definitely a period of my life that i'm not particularly proud of but it happened and it was a it was definitely a means of compensating for some stuff that came earlier. Yeah, and you're, this is taking responsibility for it. This Absolutely. What, yeah. So you're doing MMA, you're getting into lots of fights at school, uh, you're smoking lots of weed, you're not drinking at this point. A little bit. A little bit. And then you have a psychotic break. Right. I must have been 17 years old. I remember it vividly actually now. The same friend who I took up MMA to protect, her boyfriend smacked her. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm I'm gonna hurt him. I didn't sleep for about two weeks. I barely ate because of that. 
I was so distraught. You know, I was obsessive and you know, I, and to tell the truth, I was, I had feelings for this girl and I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. And I was just training MMA with my friends like mm -hmm. all day. Mm -hmm. That's all we did. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wasn't eating or sleeping. So I wasn't right. really getting a lot out of it. Finally, I ended up breaking his window on his car and then getting in a fight with him. You know, fight ended. And I remember going home and that night, I started to get psychotic. I think a lot of it had to do with the lack of sleep. I'll do it. The lack of sleep, the lack of eating. Even to this day, that can be a problem. And I went into the hospital. I was out of my mind having all these crazy thoughts. I got out. They put me on some good medication. I was mm -hmm. fine. I didn't want to keep taking the medication because I wanted to keep smoking pot. Here's another thing. So why do you suppose, besides the fact that hitting a woman is the worst thing in the world, why do you suppose watching your friend hit his girlfriend triggered you so badly my mom and my dad yeah right. yeah yeah right went right in this is important to note folks it's not that he witnesses this incident and it caused him to be psychotic because oh my god he's re-experienced his father's abuse of his mother that's not what we're talking about we're talking about it's a chain of events that that incident went right in deeply hit you at your core caused a cataclysmic chain of events loss of sleep high anxiety probably smoking more weed, marijuana uh, it has definitely been linked to psychosis. Yeah, It suppresses REM sleep. REM sleep is absolutely necessary to keep your brain together. So if you're smoking a lot of weed and not getting enough REM sleep, it can really mess you up. And one could say, for instance, that, and this is a guess on my part, that schizo, so schizoaffective and schizophrenia, they usually hit young men between the ages of like 18 and 25. Let's say you had, there was this sleeping giant in your psyche, uh, mm -hmm. the blues. Yeah, perfect. Well, you know, something like that, seriously. And maybe, who, who knows, if you want to get really deep, maybe from a young age, you sense that there was something within you that was dormant and, and coming. At any rate, this cataclysmic chain of events happens where, you know that scene, have you seen Lord of the Rings? Of course. You know that scene where they're in this cave and he drops a, a whole suit of armor down this well? Of course. That wakes yeah. everything up. <laughs> and all the goblins and all the horrible things in that cave suddenly like, oh, you're somebody in here. We're going to get you. So it's not to say that the well was some sort of deep wound, symbolic of some deep wound, but simply that there was a cataclysmic chain of events that led to the awakening of something really, really serious. Right. Right. You didn't sleep and all these, this perfect storm happened and bam. So that is not to say that I'd necessarily believe that, you know, a child growing up and watching his mother be abused, his father be abusive, not feeling safe, not feeling connected necessarily causes schizoaffective disorder. Nobody actually knows what causes those things. Nobody right. knows if it's genetic. Nobody knows where it comes from. Things like depression and anxiety, it's much, it's a much straighter line. Like, oh yeah, I can see why you feel depressed. I can see why you feel anxious based on how you were shaped. But psychosis is a totally different deal. Could have been genetic, could not be genetic. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I do. I th this is going to sound weird. Um, I honestly almost think of it in like spiritual terms, which of course is not rational and doesn't and cannot be proven. Um, sorry. It's okay. I, I believe people were put on earth for a reason. Okay. Right? I believe there was some... Like some darkness that I had to go through to bring to sort of and br like bring me to the other side of it, mm -hmm. and that like I'm here. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm here. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone does, mm -hmm. right? But I, it's like this belief that I went through this dark spot in my life that 
what I went through will help someone else someday. That's beautiful. It's the best, it's the best answer I can give you. That's all you need. That yeah. works for me. You're right. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. It's just, it's a little, it's a little tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're brave coming on here and talking about this. It's no joke. Yeah, you're telling the whole wide world about your your pain. Yeah, it's it's honestly kind of scary. Uh, but I, if it helps someone, I did the right thing. Well, it's helping me. Cool. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Let's just keep moving forward. Tell us sort of how things started going at that point. You got out of the hospital. They gave you the drugs. You didn't want them because you were smoking weed. And what happens is if you take these drugs and smoke weed, I guess it can make you even more psychotic. Is that correct? It would probably screw someone up really badly. Yeah. yeah. So I just decided to not take the drugs, smoke weed. Before too long, I was psychotic again. I yeah. went through a couple psychotic breaks. I, I can't remember the details of all of them, to right. be honest. I remember there was a really bad one where I had done coke. And that really, really set me off the edge. And then I moved out here to California. From where? From Miami. Okay. At that point, I, my psyche was relatively normal. I hadn't been diagnosed yet with schizoaffective disorder. How old were you? I was 22. Okay. You know, they told me I was bipolar. Can I speak to that? Sure. Sometimes schizoaffective disorder is incorrectly diagnosed as bipolar disorder. And the reason for that is that you can have a manic episode with psychotic features. So somebody can go off the rails. They can't sleep. They can't, you know, they have delusions of grandeur. They spend lots of money. They F lots of people. And they have grandiose disconnected thoughts, which can look like mania. So sometimes I would imagine from a psychiatrist's position that it's hard to discern between an intense manic episode and an intense psychotic episode, which is this person feeling. How do I know if they're bipolar? And how do I know if they have schizophrenia? Which means that they might end up giving them the wrong meds. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so keep going. So you hadn't been diagnosed yet. You're 22 years old. At this point, I'd been drinking for several years. I actually quit smoking pot a couple years before that. Uh -huh. The drinking never caused any real issues with my mental health, at least none that I that I was causally aware of. How much were you drinking? Um, I would drink mostly on weekends. I was a weekend warrior. I would drink till I blacked out, which was some. oftentimes it was one of those big bottles of jungle juice. Ugh. Yeah, bad. And how, how long have you been doing that for? Since what age? Probably 18. So one of the questions I ask patients or ask anyone if they're concerned that they may have alcoholism or someone that they know maybe have alcoholism, as I say, how many times a year do you drink to the point where you black out? And if they pause to think about the question, they're most likely an alcoholic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, keep going. At some point, I decided I wanted to stop drinking. How old were you? What was going on that you wanted to stop drinking? Well, I was 22. It was actually kind of a moment of clarity. I was sitting on a balcony with my friends, mm -hmm. right? And we're yelling at people off the balcony, you know, we're acting a fool, right? I just broke down. I broke down because, and the reason I broke down is that I kept drinking and it stopped having an effect. Oh, interesting. I, I couldn't get drunker. Fascinating. And were you having psychotic episodes at this point? I think I was at the beginning of it. Beginning I think I was it. at the beginning. Like the mania was starting to come back. So there's, it's basically there's, there's the manic type and the depressive type of schizoaffective and you were the manic type. Right. So the mania was starting to come back and, you know, I was more promiscuous. I was more aggressive. I was just all these different traits that tend to come with mania. I hit bottom. My friend was telling me, dude, you should go to AA. And so I did. And got a sponsor and did the steps and all that? Got a sponsor, okay. did the steps. So you successfully stopped drinking. How long did you stay sober for? Sober for after that? Been six years, still sober. Oh, wow. And so you, the, you had this period of light come into your life. Well, yes. The thing that made it challenging was that shortly after I got sober, the real psychosis hit. 
What do you mean by the real psychosis? The psychosis hit that I thought wouldn't end. Was it more intense than the previous episodes? It was a lot more intense. I was diagnosed as schizoaffective, and the doctors were telling me, this is chronic. You will probably never be able to fully function again. Jesus. Right. What optimists. Right? Like, how is that helpful to tell someone? Like, just give them the meds and... No, sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. Um, the one person who was an optimist, despite what was going on, was me. I was like, fuck that. Yeah. You know, like, I'm not going to live the rest of my life essentially out of my mind. You don't have to get too specific, but how was this psychotic break more intense than the previous ones? I may have misspoke. It may not have been the level of the psychosis. I think it was the hopelessness of the situation. The longer duration, maybe? It was, it, yeah. It, yeah, that was it. It was a longer duration. How the other ones went, came and went. Like in a couple days? A couple weeks. A couple weeks. And how long was this sticking around for? Oh, it, two years. Two years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And but during that time you were hopeful? It was a combination. Part of me was like, I'm screwed, but then there was this like smaller part of me mm-hmm. that like I refused to give up on that was like, No, you're gonna get out of this. I, I just like refused to give up. How did your life change after you had that major psychotic break? What was different? Did you change where you were living? Did you move? Did you did you lose all your friends? Like what happened? Definitely lost a lot of friends. Um, didn't move. I stay. I was. I was already living in my mom's house. You know, I had to quit school. I could only hold down a part-time job. I was working at a restaurant. They had to put me in the back because I couldn't really interact with people. I went to AA meetings and like tried to make friends, but you know, I was out of my mind. It's it's pretty hard to interact with people in that kind of state of mind. Would you get paranoid? Super yeah. paranoid. I think people were talking about me. I think all these things, and like I knew on some level that it wasn't true, but the thought that what if it is scared me yeah and so you went on this way for two years uh, staying on meds i'm assuming you weren't doing the gym anymore uh you said you were gaining weight gained about 40 pounds 40 pounds weren't able to work were you we stayed in the restaurant did you able, able to work in the restaurant? i worked in the restaurant the whole time but as i started to get better they they were like okay you can go out front now well, how did you start to get better what did you see well i got on good meds first it's weird like i stopped isolating as much right uh-huh. i started to come out of my shell a little bit the voices got less and less. The delusions got less and less. At some point, I was able to handle them. And that's how it is today. Because sometimes stuff comes up. Like I'll, you know, I'll get a delusional thought in my head, but I have a good grasp of it. What do you do? Tell myself it's not real. How do you do that? I've gained the strength of mind where I can tell myself this is what the real reality is. Right? So I'll give you an example. Sure. Um, aliens are talking to me. Right. I think okay. that in my head. Then I, I take a step back and I ask myself, are aliens really talking to you? No, of course they're not. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Are there aliens in the universe? Maybe. Who the fuck knows, right? But they're not talking to you. That's a, that's some narcissistic shit that I came up with in my head. Right. So I tell myself what the real reality is, and I convince myself of it. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. That's awesome. That's yeah. a lot of strength. Yeah. How did you develop that strength? I was seeing a psychiatrist who specializes in teaching people these kinds of coping mechanisms, Uh right? And he taught me these things. I just practiced. I practiced and I got better. Did anything that your psychiatrist taught you stand out that you'd like to share with the world? Sure. If you're going through this, Mm -hmm. right? If you're going through what, what you're going through, the voices you hear and the delusions you hear that are all out there, they are all just records playing inside of you. It's all, it's all in you. It's something that you haven't had a reckoning with yet. Something that you need to face inside yourself that you need to handle. That's all I got. That's all you need. Thank you. Yeah. That's well put. Do you feel like you've been reckoning with these things? I try to focus now 
more on my present and my future than my past. That's just what works for me personally. Okay. So two years went by, you're 24 years old. How old are you now? I'm 28. 28. So you're 24 years old and you start to emerge from this fog. The meds start to kick in. You realize the doctors were not correct. Right. Tell us about your life at that point and how you began to rebuild your life. You know, I'm in a 12-step program. I started to go to meetings. Uh I started to meet people, right? Just like talk to people and get involved, become a part of. I wasn't really going to school. I wasn't quite ready for that yet. Really, the main focus of my life for a long time as I started to emerge was my social life. I never really had like an engaging, productive, meaningful social life. Like Mm -hmm. I never really had that. So I focused on that a lot. You know, I built this like host of friends, as they say. Honestly, the vast majority of the work I've done has been pretty recent. Oh, really? You know, I've started working on just basic habits that will help me have the kind of life that I want to have. You know, I get up. I could barely get out of bed. I still struggle with getting out of bed sometimes. You know, that's just a, it's a habit that I formed when I was psychotic as a means of coping. You know, I didn't exercise. It's part of why I gained a lot of weight. I stopped exercising, which was a huge part of my life. I, mm-hmm. I always loved to exercise. You know, I stopped eating healthy, and then now I eat healthy again. I do jujitsu, right? Yeah, right. I, I love jujitsu. It's something that I did in the past as a means of being the most physically dominant person in the room. Uh-huh. Now it's just something that I love to do. Right. It's just like a hobby, and it, and it brings me joy. I'm back in school. I literally just got four acceptance letters to schools, two of which are like top-notch schools. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. What, what, to where? UC Santa Cruz, UC Irvine, and then I got uh, one to SFSU. I got one to uh, Sonoma State. Congratulations. Yeah. What are you going to major in? Uh, screenwriting. Screenwriting? Yeah. Oh, wow. My goal is to become a professor of screenwriting uh-huh. and as well as you know write my own uh, screenplays and television treatments and things like that. Cool. So, and are you living on your own? I live with roommates. Okay. So you're living on your own? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not living at home. Not in a, not an SLE anymore. Done with both of those. Done with, you're you're working. I'm not working at the moment. I'm mostly focusing on school. Okay. My family is pretty well set up in that manner. So they're like, look, we'll get we'll we'll help you out. You uh-huh. focus on school. You get out of school. You're on your own. Yeah. That kind of thing. So one thing I want to emphasize too, folks listening, is that when people struggle with these types of things, whether it's uh, psychosis or addiction, is that they fall back on the bedrock of their life, which is their family. I don't know why in America we're so caught up in not supporting the people we're related to, and you have to go out there and make everything on your own. I think it's ridiculous. I have seen every possible type and manner of human being fall back on their family for support when when shit hits the fan. Real common, nothing to be ashamed of. Do it if you need it. That's what they're there for. That's the point. I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I went through I went through a really shitty time. You did. You, you know? did. You took a hit, man. That's yeah. what I was telling my friend who, you know, we did an episode on this and I said like, "Man, you took a hit. You took a hard hit." And so what's what's in the immediate future for you? What's next? Keep getting in shape. I went from 210 pounds to 170. Uh, so I'm trying to get down to 155. It's my fighting weight. <laughs> cool. So to speak. You will to fight Khabib soon. Yeah, right? Perfect. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mess with Khabib, but I'm going to continue to build these positive habits in my life that are going to propel me to where I want to go. Uh-huh. I am going to keep on doing school. Pretty soon, I'll, ha- I'll be able to start applying for jobs. Are there any resources or anything you'd recommend for family members managing somebody in their family with who's dealing with psychosis? Sure. 
if they are a danger to themselves or others, get them 5150, like right away. What is that? 5150 is a, I believe, a three-day hold where they evaluate you. And how do people get someone at 5150? Hmm. Call, the police. Call the police. Call the police. Call the police. Yes, <laughs> yes you got it. And say, I would, I'm, I'm, I'd like to, I would like, I think the word is initiate a 5150. I'm really concerned about my family member. And the cops will come and they'll evaluate, make an evaluation and they'll take the person in. Yeah. They won't beat them up. No, right? that doesn't happen They're, very often. No. Uh, what else should family members do? Be there for the person until they can get better. Okay. It's not as, as specific as the 5150, but it's a hard thing to go through. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very hard thing to go through. And you're literally, you're not capable of hand, taking care of yourself at that point. Yeah. Right? Which is, which is hard. Is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, I'm just really grateful to be on here and be able to talk about my experience. And I, I really just hope it helps someone. I'm sure it will. I mean, it's, it's such a, I mean, I've gotten quite an education out of it and I appreciate your time. Thanks. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Pertinent information stemming from this podcast will appear in the program notes. In addition, should you wish to be a guest on my show or have any questions, please contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thanks again. And remember, if you ever find your plate is full, well, get yourself a bigger plate.